that was definitely divinely selected because that just harmonizes so well what we're going to look at today in John 17 and Christ praying for his disciples. And I don't want this to overwhelm you. We're not going to get through all this today, um, Lord willing. But uh, we're going to take our time because um, I got news this week that our, our religious visas to Cuba were rejected by the government. So we'll be here through September. So we'll continue on through the study of, of the prayers of Christ, which is a glorious thing. So I want to read something to you that kept me awake last night. Um, this is from Richard Sibbs, very dangerous book to read <laughs> in a good way. Um, he's talking here about Christ as he would, was both a chosen servant and a choice servant. And I just want to read you a small paragraph here as it relates to our communion with him, our, our prayer to him and, and with him. And it's, Richard says, and this directs us also in our devotions to God, how to carry ourselves in our prayers and services to offer Christ to God. Behold, Lord, thy chosen servant, that thou hast chosen to be my mediator, my savior, my all in all to me. He is a mediator and a savior of thine own choosing. Thou canst not refuse thine own choice. If thou look upon me, there's nothing but matter of unworthiness. But look upon him who thou hast chosen, my head and my Savior. So, volume one of Richard Sibbs talking about his, his description of Christ, his meditation of Christ. But today we're going to look at John 17. We're going to get into verses, begin at verses 6 through 19 in this middle section of where Christ begins to pray for his disciples. And just meditating on this and thinking about Christ's prayer, how he prayed, what he prayed, his focus in prayer, began to just to see, you know, in our own natures, even in our remaining sin, just the great curse we all bear of selfishness. Um, we see it even in our prayers, our own prayers, not just when we pray for ourselves, but even in, in cases when we pray for others. But we see here, as we saw last week, even though Christ was praying for his glory, that glory was ultimately to be for the glory of the Father. Never are Christ's prayers, do we see them ever selfish in any means, never praying in a selfish way. But we see from last week's study in verses 1 to 5 and into today's continued prayer of Christ, of Jesus, it, it is to consider Christ is here nearing the boundary between really these two worlds of, of finite earth and eternal glory. And he's praying not only to be permitted to return to that eternal glory with the Father, but I was also thinking of, of that glory in its ongoing relationship to his work here on earth and carrying out, fulfilling the Father's perfect will. So the hour has come. The hour of his crucifixion has come. Uh, of that, what we talked about last week, to that public display of the glory work that is going to be accomplished and so he continues in this prayer, as we looked at just real briefly, praying for himself in, in this covenant fulfillment, his, his mission of his prayer, 
that his glory with the ultimate glory being the glory of his Father and the basis of his prayer of, of Jesus upholding that eternally past decision that was made to grant Jesus the authority over all people on the basis of his obedient humiliation and his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation. And that all that the Father had given to him, to those he would give eternal life, and that eternal life being what? Everlasting life only? What is eternal life? Knowing the Father and knowing him who the Father sent, Jesus Christ, right? And this is the only means that God has provided in revealing himself for us to come to know him is through Jesus Christ. So now Jesus begins to pray for his own, for, for these 11 disciples intimately right there with him in his midst. He just, he's just finished the, the farewell discourse. And now we're going to look at this section beginning with what I've called the, the intercessory basis the foundation that Christ lays. And, and the three parts in this we're going to see is his manifestation of the Father. He identifies his followers in a very particular way, true followers, and how they are set apart unto Christ. And that's probably as far as we're going to get. I don't know. We'll see. I'm not going to rush it, like I said. But then following that, we get into Verse 11b is where we actually get in and see, begin to see his specific intercessory request, those, those requests he makes. And those are three distinct areas, too. Protection from disunity, to be one, and what that means. Protection from the evil one. And, and looking at, you know, where is that in our prayers? Not just... Lord, keep me from the evil one, but how do we go about, in in light of his prayer, praying that for ourselves and for one another? And then ultimately, we know of sanctification. So, I'm not going to read through all the verses. We're going to take them step by step so they're fresh in our mind. But would somebody mind opening to John 17 and read verses 6 through 8 for me? John 17, 6 through 8. You got it? Go, brother. Amen. Thank you. What What's happening here? What's happening is is Jesus brief, briefly, he's interrupting his initial petition, verses 1 to 5, but he's, he's going into further elaboration. He's going to begin to really explicate Jesus' glorifying work of the Father through what he describes as manifesting his name and what that means. And secondarily, he's, he's going to review precisely, as I said, who his followers are. How do we identify true followers, disciples, believers in Jesus Christ? So in manifesting the Father's name, he didn't come just to offer a simple 
higher moral example to us. His specific purpose, he came to give, to give a a revelation, a manifestation of the name of the Father, which is to reveal to the world the Father himself. But why else did he come? In light of that, in revealing the Father, what else did he come to reveal here? Himself, yes, absolutely. To reveal that all that he had has come from the Father himself. But to give these disciples the words from the Father and to give understanding in in these words. So this, this revealing of the name of God to those given to Jesus, what do you see or what, what is included and involved here just in this context and what we see here? We see the very character and nature of God. When it says, I'm come to reveal the name of God, to reveal your name, he's talking about revealing the very character and the very nature of God. We see this back beginning in John's Gospel in, in chapter 1, verse 8, talking about the light of God coming into the world. And in verses 1 to 5, also here, the giver of life. But what 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 measurable basis do we see that these disciples comprehended this or understood this? We don't know their hearts. We don't know the depth of their understanding. It's not disclosed to us here. But what we have is is Jesus revealing to himself or to us himself a very powerful reality of this already decreed redemptive work. His it is really his own declared covenantal faithfulness of what he will do, what he is about to accomplish, and what he will accomplish. He is already knowing what is going to be done. And now he is speaking it to an expounding of this fulfillment, really this eschatological prophecy of what he's going to bring to them in salvation. So Jesus is expressing the Father's sovereign work. And what we'll see later in the keeping by the Son and keeping by the Father, and ultimately in, in that transfer of the keeping power of God. But he's, he's establishing here a basis for his specific intercession to come. And this basis is nothing other than the fulfilling of this mission that the Father has given to his Son. Any questions so far? Is that... Have I completely lost you and confused you in that? So he's manifesting the name of the Father, and in that name we find the light of God, the revelation of God, his nature, his character, his power, his, his attributes, all that Christ did in all of his revelation, he revealed the Father in all, all of his fullness that we could comprehend in, in a finite world as such here. So he continues on in, in identifying his followers. And this isn't, this isn't viewed in a particular order, but let's look at this in the basis of Jesus' prayer. In verse 6, it says, they were gods. What do we see in that, in that reality of these men were yours? Predestination, right? Yeah, chosen. God has given them to Jesus as a gift. 
they've been called, right? The Father has called them. He's given them now to the Son. Jesus has made God known to them. He's manifested, revealed publicly his name to them. This is who and why Christ came. They have, they have received or kept and guarded your word. They're walking in it. They have been saved. They are being sanctified. They will be, as we'll see in a minute, commissioned. What, it, it, isn't this very familiar for all of us? This is all the redemptive work of Christ for anyone. We're predestined. We're called. What does Romans say? We're justified. And then we're ultimately glorified. These are the identifying marks, the realities of a true believer. And, and if you can see with me here that all of this comes from a main prophecy that we see way back in Jeremiah where he says in Jeremiah 31 that all will be taught by God. And also, even earlier to this, this context, John 6.45, where he says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So this, this is the identifying marks, is that they hear the words, the revealing words of Christ, revealing the Father to them, calling them that woo of the Spirit, that call of the Spirit and the conviction of sin. And, and in this, Jesus is reiterating and affirming this work and, and the specifics of it by, by both revealing and confirming to these disciples in, in the context of this prayer who they are in this decreed purpose. What's now being fulfilled right before your very eyes, in your presence, in his coming, and think about this, this transcendent reality in our lives. This, this doesn't change. This doesn't morph in any way. The gospel doesn't become diluted or, or offset or, or, or added to in any way. And, and what was amazing here is looking how Jesus used very specific verb tenses here in the Greek. Actually, John could, composing this, but, but taking Christ's words and the Greek is actually saying that in Jesus' work of revealing or manifesting God's name, he's saying that I have already summed up the work that I've come to do up to now, and what I'm speaking about to you right now, what I'm praying about, includes that work yet to be accomplished on the cross on your behalf. This, this I mean, here's the kingdom piercing into time. This has already been decreed. I'm here fulfilling what you've seen already and what's yet to come for your, for your good and glory. I see it all. You know, you, you can see the glimpse of his deity now being expressed in his humanity that he's showing this. Is this assurance? I mean, even for today to see Christ knows it all. He sees, truly sees the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end for our salvation, for our redemption, for our justification, and what's to come in our glorification. This is exciting. I'm loving this. Anyway, but, but also, you can see here, too, this, this antecedent nature of belonging here in what Jesus is speaking. What I mean is referring to the disciples. They belong to God already. I mean, to him, that's a given. Do you think they comprehended that, though? Think they were fully had full comprehension of this predestination doctrine, this truth and reality? Probably not. 
But don't you see the mercy and the grace of Christ in this? That even though their faith was probably, yeah, mustard seed size, he, he, he conveyed this, this eternal reality to them where they were right now. And, and their, res- I'm sorry? Right. Amen. But even even thinking, because we we know what happens, right? Just a few chapters later, what does Peter do? I don't know you. I, I'm not a part of that. I don't, I don't have anything to do with that. Even even us knowing that, but. Their, them and their position at that time with so little faith, fleeing, being scattered, Christ still saw them as his own. That That's there, yeah. <laughs> that's enough to get your head around, yeah. But we also see in verse 7, when Christ uses the word now and the verb to know here, speaking of their present state, now they've come to know all that Jesus had intended to reveal. And, of course, they will come to know more at Pentecost, obviously, when the Holy Spirit comes and re- re- recalls to mind all the things that Christ said. For them, that was a promise, obviously. But this is really amazing to consider when, when we know from the Scriptures, like I said, just a couple chapters later, and thinking of what comes with Peter and the rest of them, they're all scattered. Even at his ascension, some are still doubting, Right? Yet Jesus says they've come to know. He, he knows what is in them. He knows what seed has been planted. He knows what the outcome will be because he knows the hearts of men. But they received the words of Jesus, says they truly understood that he came forth from the Father, and they believed that the Father had sent him. And their hearing and receiving the words of the Father given by the Son, where obviously this is an ever-deepening awareness, an ever-deepening assurance, an ever-growing faith, just as it is with us, and, and coming to know, to grow in that knowledge. But Jesus sees this in the light of an already accomplished work. He sees that in the life of every true believer. At the moment of salvation, he sees that accomplished work that will be brought forth. That's a hope for us. Not in ourselves by any means. We don't bring anything to salvation. We don't, we don't bring anything to our sanctification, saving our obedience to his word and his commands that he's made alive to us. But Jesus Christ sees us even in its infancy. infancy. And this really illuminates, we meditate on this, this really illuminates the surety of Christ for us and his work. Also, just to take another serious note here, that in Jesus' repeating this thought of this predestinating work of the Father and speaking to them and to us as belonging to God before the beginning of time, this is a very lively truth. When it begins to work in our hearts and mind, it will help in a great way mortify our arrogance any human arrogance that we think we bring something to the table in this except to the worship of Christ but it also it will also for us magnify the the very nature 
of this unbounded divine sovereignty as it's revealed in the hearts of sinners. I mean, that, that is both an assurance for us and a drive to fulfill the commission, which we're going to see here in a little bit. But as we come to know more and more of God, more and more of the Son as he reveals the Father to us in his ways, we, we, you know, we pray, we cry out with David, Lord, please open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things of your law because it all speaks of you. In, in them we find Christ. Another amazing truth in this, this foundational section. The Lord Jesus is God's gift to us. I mean, I've, we, we know some brothers that have some tracks on that. The greatest gift that was ever given by the greatest giver ever known. But how often do we consider ourselves that we are gift to Christ? That we are God's gift to him? Not to get prideful, but... These these are not parallel gifts, by the way. The, the gift of Jesus is for the good of the recipient and the glory of the giver, the great giver, the Father, where our being given as a gift to Jesus is for the good of the gift, right? We being the gift to Christ, it is definitely for our good, for us, and, and for the glory of the recipient to Jesus Christ. Very much like what we see in the adoption process, you know, when an adopted child is given to the parents, it is for the good of the gift, for the good of the child, and it and it brings an honor and a glory of sense to the the adopting parents to to demonstrate such love to that child. Amen. Any questions so far? Any thoughts? Okay. So I hope you see with me in this this part of, of the basis, what I'm calling the basis of this intercessory prayer up to this point, is that it is the disciples who believe. They hear, they obey. This is all by the grace and the work of God, of course. They believe, and important to note, their belief is not that of a robot, right? We know that. They not, don't become automatons. They're just on puppet strings. But for them and for any believer, what we see here, too, is that great mystery of God's unconditional sovereignty and election in salvation and our free agency coexisting. This is according to the scriptures. I mean, this, this is the amazing work here that goes on, Philippians two twelve to 13. The work that God has begun, we are to continue to work out in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work to will according to his good pleasure and to the glory of the giver. So even though at this point the spiritual life and walk and faith of these disciples may seem fickle, maybe immature, yet it's real. They have obeyed Jesus in the Father's word, and Jesus, true to his own word, takes care not to break a bruised reed. He doesn't extinguish this smoldering wick. You know, he's very compassionate, very merciful, didn't come out with his yardstick and say, okay, where are you guys? You know, no, I already know the work I'm going to accomplish in you. Okay? So Jesus continues his intercessory basis in verses 9 to 11a. I'm going to read these real quick. Jesus says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf, 
I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. That's really where that verse break should have occurred, but that's all right. For these disciples and and any true disciple of Christ who are called are to be distinguished or, or distinguishable from the world and set apart unto the Lord. And just as we saw back in verse 6 as well. But Jesus makes a very clear distinction for them here when he is praying for these disciples and not praying for the world. It's not that he doesn't care for the world. We're going to see later on that these disciples and we ourselves are to be witnesses into the world, right? We are commissioned just as they are going to be commissioned, that the world or those in the world may also come to faith in Jesus Christ and that there would be some saved. But, but Jesus is praying in a very exclusive sense for those that are uniquely his own. This, this is amazing to consider. He prays for them in a way that he does not pray for the world. He, he's not asking that the world would be one. He doesn't ask that the world be protected from the evil one. And because the world, as John sets forth throughout this gospel, the world is set against who? Who is the world set against? Christ. God. Anything holy. Right? And we see here again that Jesus is is setting forth this very powerful truth for these disciples to grab a hold of. The, The appeal of predestination and all that it means. Now he says in verse 10, And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. How are these grounding words for us? How is this beneficial to us? What do you see in Christ saying, all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them? Speaking of the Father's ownership, right? And this this grace, really a grace-lavishing, salvific ownership is equal to Christ's ownership of us as well. And that this prayer will not go unheeded by the Father. This is not something the Father is just going to gloss over because it's in Scripture. This is a prayer to the Father that will not go unheeded. But we see in this a, a very great Christological significance in the gospel and in this prayer. For we can all pray. We should all pray, right? God all I have is yours, right? All that we have comes from the Father. The grace just to get up and breathe this morning, to enjoy breakfast for those of you who ate, to be able to get into a car, to enjoy clothing and a covering. All of these things are a great blessing and grace of God. But no mere mortal can pray, all you have is mine, right? We don't have everything of God's. But these, these, these are grounds for Jesus' intercession on behalf of the disciples and for us. For It is a holy 
and very rare privilege to not only observe, but to reckon these truths to ourselves in this prayer, to, to hold them as very sacred foundational truths in our walk of, of the reality of Christ interceding, making these requests on behalf of us. And these truths that reflect the essential unity of the Father and the Son and reveal how the Lord's basis in this prayer are traced all the way back to the eternal purposes of the deity. Why do we need to see this? Why do we need to realize these truths, how essential they are, that they point back to these, these eternal purposes of the deity being fulfilled for us right now? Any thoughts on that? True. True. How should that affect our relationship with him and even with one another? Don't at times we still question and doubt the love of God, the grace of God in our lives? This, these are intended to in, in increase and strengthen our faith and our dependence upon him and the Father, and those as those that he has loved, set his love upon, and distinguished them from the rest of the world. It's like Landon exhorted us, you know, coming in here today. We deserve to be out there, or possibly even in hell right now. But he has set such a love, such a mercy, such a call upon our souls, undeservedly. And now he continues, as we know from Hebrews, he continues to to intercede like this on our behalf. And now we're getting to glimpse in here. I I mean, think, too, also about what we study in Colossians 1, about all the fullness in Christ dwells in bodily form, all the the deity. And he shares now that fullness with us. We've we've been given a privilege and opportunity to come into his, his very courts and before his throne room to know him. So with, with this basis and, and with Christ's confirmation of just who his disciples are, he's going to begin now to make very specific petitions for them to the Father, Christ directly to the Father on our behalf, on their behalf. And there's two sections in this. If I'm going too fast, slow me down. I, I get into this and I just keep going. So if you've got any questions, please, please holler. But we're going to look at two sections of this and these intercessory requests. Protection from disunity. What does it mean to be one? And then protection from the evil one and ultimately sanctification. So first, let's look at uh, verse 11b to 13. Jesus says, Holy Father... Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So I, I probably should have included part A in there. But that's all right. You, you, you remember that from preceding. But he's continuing this, this, this thought, this prayer. 
but he begins to echo the, these pronouncements of, of his pending departure. It's almost we can picture him right now between heaven and earth because he's going to the Father. He's no longer going to be in the world. And then it's beginning this intercessory prayer, very significant request to the Holy Father. And this first thing we see here, the first request is for divine protection. How critical it is, the the power from being separated from God and the Son, um, this, this Teresan, keep them in your name. And it's, again, referring back to their, their own experience over the past three years of being with Christ, that Jesus has kept them in his power, in the name of the Father, under his authority, which for us signifies his supreme lordship over all these things, right? And now he's interceding this time that that keeping power, that same power, that supremacy of God will continue once he departs. Not to be altered, not to be diminished, but to continue on in that same exercise of the supremacy and the power of God. This is a great comfort for us. And second, Jesus prays for oneness, to be one. It's in or hosen, one by union. And, and it's, it's likened to the great shepherd in bringing all his sheep into one flock, into one body just as the Father and the Son are one. And just like what we see in John fourteen twenty, in our oneness in Christ. This does not mean become one, but be one or be being one, okay? As Christ prays or Jesus prays for these disciples to be one in unity with one another in the same analogy and likeness that the Father and Son are one, it has to be in a, in a continual, ongoing fashion. As First John talks about, we know those who departed from us were not one with us, right? So how, how is this protection and this unity for these disciples to be accomplished from what we see in this context? How is this unity, this protection, and this unity to be accomplished? Right. Amen. And that that's right, and that comes from his name and all that's manifested and, and meant by what Christ says in the Father's name and the power and the authority of the Father's name. It's again in his revealed character, which discloses his truth, which are our doctrinal truths that we live by. Amen. And the authority that Christ exercised, that same authority that Christ just exercised over them. And just as Jesus carried and kept them in the same character and nature of God, he's asking on our behalf for the Father to continue in that same authority, that same keeping power for us. Because this is, this is the only means 
of being kept for us in this world. There's nothing in the world that can offer us or keep us in the love of God, right? Nothing that the world offers. But as we saw earlier in John 15, talking about keeping ourselves in the love of God is through what means. How do we demonstrate our love for Christ and our love for the Father? Exactly, exactly. Those truths that he's revealed from his name, from his authority, from all that he's revealed to us. So just please note and remember as we looked earlier, you know, I just talked about that, our obedience results from our love for the Father and for our Lord. But where in verse 12 do we find the assurance of this keeping power? The same name that, that and all that it entails from the Father, right? But what about Judas? Was that a, an oops in the keeping power of Christ? Why not? Huh? Exactly. Where do, where do we see that? Psalm 41.9, right? The, the one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Fulfilled the scripture. Didn't specifically point out Judas, all right? But there was within his heart, we see from the evidence of his disobedience, of his taking 30 pieces of silver, thinking that that was something greater than to have Christ, we see the result, right? He was not a branch abiding in the vine, was he? Just as we heard last week about Josh Harris, same thing, you know? Lest he repent and come to true saving faith in Christ, he is not one of the branches to, that is abiding in the vine. So this reference here, bringing out in this prayer, the reason Christ brings this out is, is for our benefit to realize that that's the result of no, tr- no true saving faith, no abiding in the vine of Christ. These are the evidences that we can tangibly see of the outcome of those who truly have no faith, right? Any other thoughts on that? Right. Right. Amen. Yeah, Lord willing, we'll, we're going to get into that more next week cause in a specific prayer for 21st century disciples. Amen. So, yeah, I mean, in this we see the surety, what's talked about, the surety of Christ and what he can convey and bring for those that are his. Yeah, brother. Yeah, to not that we ourselves can bring that keeping power, but we can definitely encourage them to look to the one who is keeping them. Absolutely, yeah. 
because all of that, all that he has is from the Father. And that's what he shares now with us. He gives to us in keeping us. That he's, he's kind of, in a sense, commissioned by request that the Father continue on what he's done now. And we know that comes by means of who he sent, the Holy Spirit, right? And in the remembering, the knowing, the realizing these truths, not just in our mind, knowing them here, but making them real in our hearts and living thereby. That I can't see you, Christ, but I know by the faith you've given me, you're the one that's going to keep me until the end. I, I have no other means. I have no other hope. Truly blessed assurance, right? Amen. So, three minutes and I'm not going to rush, I promise. Um, and we just talked about this. How, how is this oneness to be known and lived out since the disciples are many? The, the relational ties or the oneness that Jesus is praying for here is so that they may be one as the Father. But how, how do we see this oneness? You kind of, you, you, started, you started talking about it, Murray. Loving one another um, in, in purpose. What I mean is in, in our obedience, because of our love for Christ, we obey his commands, right? And that results in fruit bearing, Right? That results in witnessing, fulfilling that commission. Um, it is our means of holiness, pursuing holiness. Um, in truth, in, in, in seeking Christ, in knowing truth, because he is the revelatory truth of God. And we're going to see this in the last section even more expounded. But So for this prayer to be fulfilled in the disciples and in us, this, this oneness in love, this oneness in purpose, this oneness in holiness, which is only found in Christ, this oneness in truth, which is only found in Christ. We've got to be aware of and stand against those things that seek to destroy this oneness, right? What we talked about and preached through in Colossians 3, those things that we are to put off, right? To seek deliverance from the jealousy the hatred, the friction, the arrogant isolation, the wanting to go just go in inside ourselves and find a corner and get away from everybody. But no, to come before the Lord and seek his grace, seek his help from any, any bitterness, any unforgiving spirit, even the fiery tongues, the one-upmanship on one another, um, impatience, lies, all the fruits that our remaining sin and our flesh want to put forth, these are the things that by the Spirit of God we are to mortify and put to death, right? Because we are no longer of the world. We've been called out of the world. We are now distinguished by Christ. That's why we are to put Christ on in all of his love, his holiness, his obedience, his witness. See how it all connects? This is why Christ is praying this for us. So one final comment. We'll stop here before we get into protection from the evil one. Just thinking about verse 13, Jesus mentions these things. And, and it is these things which are all that Jesus has spoken of, prayed about to this point. They're all reminders of what he spoke to these disciples while with them. 
and they are specifically for the joy of both these disciples, present-day disciples, future disciples, and, and in realizing, seeing, and remembering that Christ prayed these things even before going to the cross to, to suffer the most severe punishment, as, as Sibs talks about, the most abased servant and yet the most excellent servant of God. He fulfilled all the prophecy, every decree, every, every command of God, the fullness of the law, in order that we may have and know true and lasting joy. If, if we don't find joy in that, we need to go back to Philippians and work at our salvation with fear and trembling. Amen? Because it, it, it was Christ's prayerful intent, and he will see this to fruition for those that are his, of seeing these truths, these prayer requests fulfilled in our lives. Think about that. Christ wanting to see the fullness of his joy fulfilled in your heart and life. He's praying that and is still praying that for each and every one of us. Let's stop there and continue in worship and some of the brothers can help.